Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Master Your Mix podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here today. This is episode 50 of the podcast. And if you had told me a few years ago that I would have a podcast that would reach 50 interviews with amazing engineers like we've had so far, I would not have believed it. Uh, you know, I started this as a small project just to kind of pick the brains of some local people, but it has definitely grown from there. And we've had some amazing guests on ever since. And, uh, I want to thank everyone who's been listening to this podcast from the beginning and everyone who writes in, sends me emails with suggestions of people to have on the show or questions to ask. I love doing this for you guys, and it's been a wild ride. It's been great to learn from so many talented people, and I will continue to do this moving forward because this is just a lot of fun, and there's a lot of other engineers out there that I would still love to learn from and that I know you would love to hear from. So, you know... Guys, if you're interested in having a guest on the show and there's someone that you would love to hear from, send me an email, info at masteryourmix.com, and I will do my best to get them on this podcast because that's what this is all about. It's all about helping people like yourself create pro recordings from your home studio. And the point behind this podcast was so that people can learn from a lot of different engineers and get a lot of different experiences and through people's experiences and through the knowledge that they're passing down in this show you can use that information to help create your own sound, to experiment with your own productions and find what works for you and what doesn't. And it's really interesting listening to these interviews because there are so many different experiences and so many different opinions. And, you know, some people will say this thing and another will say the complete opposite. And I love that because it really goes to show that there isn't one right way to do things. There's many different ways to do it. And at the end of the day, it comes down to finding what works for you. And by having people come on the show and give their differences and experiences and their different techniques and all that kind of stuff, it really does allow you to cherry pick and see which points you gravitate towards and implement that into your own process. And I think that that's ultimately how we all create our own sound is by learning through other people and experimenting just to see what works for us and what feels best to us. And ultimately, at the end of the day, our ears are going to be the judge as to what sounds good and what doesn't. So guys, thank you one more time for supporting me throughout this podcast so far. And there are plenty more episodes in the works. And I'm really excited to move forward and have a lot of other great guests on. So that brings us to today. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Churko, which if that last name sounds familiar to you, it could be because on episode 36, I interviewed his son, Kane Churko. Now, Kevin is an amazing engineer. He's been at this for quite some time, and he's worked with people like Ozzy Osbourne, Papa Roach, Five Finger Death Punch. He's also worked with artists like Britney Spears, Shania Twain, Celine Dion, Michael Bolton, and he also worked with the famed producer Mutt Lang. So, you know, Kevin has a lot of experience under his belt, and I'm really excited to dig into the interview and learn more about his career, the music he's worked on, and what goes into his productions. So let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into it. Kevin Churko, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing? Pretty good. How about you? Doing great. So for people who might not know your background and how you got into music and ultimately to where you are now, how did that happen? Can you tell us your story? Sure. Let me give you the quickest version ever because I will just go on and on <laughs> uh, about, uh, and then in third grade, I did this and then fourth grade, I did that. But 
basically grew up in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan and played in a family band. My mom and dad were very musical. My dad was a music teacher. Uh, he was he was one of the first of his family to, to get off the farm and do what he wanted to do, which was music. Uh, so he was educated, taught music at school, grabbed the family. We went on the road. And then from the time I was maybe 14, I was pretty much permanently on the road playing in a country band. And across Canada, from PI to Vancouver, back and forth, back and forth. And that went on for many years. My brother and I got our own band. And then um, that led to us always doing demos. And uh, we could never hire the good guys. So I just kind of took the reins and said, you know, I can do this better. And so, you know, again, I was very lucky. I had a musical family. We had a setup at home. I could, uh, you know, in the early days, I'd have one ghetto blaster on one side that I'd play music into the microphone from a tape. And then while that's playing on the microphone, I would do the next bass, like I play the drums into it, record it, put it on tape, play, play the uh, play the cassette, and then record the bass at the same time as it goes by to the other deck. And then I go back and forth. So that was the early, early days. But eventually we got a four track and then an eight track. And then I started doing our band's demos and recordings. And one thing led to the next until finally I was in a position, I had a family and I didn't really want to keep going on the road. And I thought, well, how can I stay in music? And being a studio guy was kind of the way that I could still keep on making music, which is the part of the equation that I liked the most, not necessarily the live playing or any of that sort of thing. I just liked making music. And creating music and recording it, like not just making it live. I, I wanted to record it. I'd like to have something at the, my, at the end of my day that says, this is what I did. So it just got to that point where I just started doing more and more of that. And one thing led to the next. And pretty soon uh, it was better for me not to play the music and just to record it and tell other people how to play it <laughs> <laughs> and help write. I mean, I, I really got to do everything I wanted to do, be a, a small piece of a lot of bands instead of being a big piece of one, one band. And, and I'd say if that's the one thing I can really tell people that if they want to be producers or engineers, that that's what I find is the best thing is that I get to be a smaller moment in a whole bunch of people's lives, musical creation lives, rather than just have my own band and do my own songs. And that's that. And, and to me, it's it's more fun. And, uh, you know, some of them succeed, some of them fail. And you get to kind of watch that show from a distance and you get to kind of get on that ride, you know, and have fun without having all the pressure that those guys have. Absolutely. I love how you look at that. That's a great way. Like, it makes a lot of sense. We, I think most yeah. of us get into this because we're musicians and then, you know, maybe our bands break up or whatever. And it's like, well, I just want to keep making music. But yeah, to, to think of it as being a part of, multiple bands that's that's very cool and also it also makes you want to you know everyone should put everyone should care about the work that they're doing so you know having that approach kind of definitely makes you a lot more involved and a lot more passionate about what you're doing as well right oh yeah yeah i mean the the passion was never less it's almost more in a sense because when people start paying you you can't afford to be wrong or you can afford less to be wrong because they don't want to pay you unless you're giving them something that's good. Whereas when you're in your own band, you, in a sense, it, it's kind of tricky because you, on one hand, you have all the freedom you want, which means you can do whatever you want. But on the other hand, you tend to do things that aren't necessarily productive. If left to our own devices, if, if myself left my own device, I'd probably be making music that isn't necessarily accessible and, and appreciated by all. Whereas when someone comes to me to produce a record, it's my job to make it accessible to as many people as I can. That's why, in, in, in my case, generally, that's why they're hiring me. They're hiring me to make, to make them as good as I possibly can 
and to make sure they have careers and make sure they have records that people want to hear. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. So with your musical upbringing and having that musical family, did you feel pressure to get into music or was it kind of just a natural thing just by being around it? No, I didn't feel any pressure to get into music at all. I, I really, I jumped on that bull and rode that as, as far as I could. And I'm still, you know, riding, getting bucked, bucked around, you know, to and fro. But but it, it, it was something I always wanted to do, um, even to the point of when I was still in school. You know, I remember being in like seventh grade, eighth grade, getting up at 6 a.m. to practice piano before going to school because I'd still want to play with my friends after after school, but I wanted to get some practice in ahead of time and not be chained to the piano afterwards. So, you know, I, you know, a lot of, a lot of my family was pretty focused like that. You know, all us kids were able to, you know, like I said, very musical family, you know, five siblings that, that still do it to, to this day. But, you know, we always had a lot of drive and a lot of, uh, um, focus, you know, let's call it and, uh, passion and encourage each other to have that passion too. So, I mean, it worked out great. Absolutely. And it sounds like, uh, I, well, I know you're Canadian, so, you know, a lot of Canadians, those, those early mornings, early morning practice, it's usually for hockey, but you're putting it into your piano work. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I did, did, did hockey too, but on non-hockey season, I did piano. <laughs> uh, although, you know, for my hockey seasons, it was mostly after school and at night and weekends and that sort of thing. So I never, I don't, I don't really remember getting up at that 6 a.m. hockey, hockey practice, but, but a lot of, a lot of music stuff, not just piano, but later on, I was, I became more of a drummer than a, than a piano player. So, you know, I couldn't get up at 6 a.m. and play drums. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Would have I been mean, a, family, quite the awakening for the family, right? <laughs> but my, my parents were very accommodating, but that would be one level too far i think if i started playing drums at at 6 a.m and my neighbors too yeah so, I bet. <laughs> but it was a different time where when uh, neighbors were um na- neighbors were really into you being a musician and i think back to all the noise we made at any time of day like on when we were older on friday night we get home at midnight and fire up the gear you know, and have some fun. I can't imagine doing that in this day and age where people are so um, unaccommodated or uninterested in their neighbors playing in bands and that sort of thing. I mean, it, it, I think where I live now, there's no way I could do that. My kids could do that if they were kids. They're not kids. They're adults now. But there's no way they could do something like that now. So growing up in that kind of town at that kind of time, you know, really helped me become the uh, producer that I am now. That's amazing. So you had mentioned you you kind of got your start, you know, mixing or recording with like one ghetto blaster and then recording like doing that that style. Like, how did you ultimately learn to record? Was it was that just like a trial and error thing that you figured that out, or did your family kind of pass on that engineering side to you as well? No, no, I I can say I think I think they they'd support me in the fact that the the recording was more my thing and my brother. I mean, I convinced my younger brother probably when he was about twelve. Or maybe I was twelve. I can't remember exactly, but I convinced him to to chip in with me on our first Tascam two two forty four, which was a four four track at that time. After I realized I can make these demos by going from one tape deck to the other tape deck, so then I realized, well, that's great, but I don't have very much control. How can I do this better? And then they had the four track that came out. And I go, that's it. So I convinced him to chip in some some money, and I still remember the day I bought that in Yorkton. Fortunately, I can't remember the name of the store, but, uh, or maybe it was Prince, Prince Albert, but, but anyways, you know, we bought this four track and that gave me all sorts of 
opportunities and fun and it had a cue on it and it was the first time i had multi-track accordion where i could punch in and do all those kinds of things and that led to as soon as i had that fos x8 track i got that then and so my brother and i you know we followed through a lot of that and you know my the rest of my family was more involved in the performing of music and making it but the let's call it the engineering role definitely including the live live engineer live sound too definitely fell on my shoulders a little little bit more little more than everybody else. I was the one that, that rang out the room, EQ'd the room. And, you know, my brother would set it cause he had a guitar that he'd go out front and actually listen, listen to the mains and all that. But, but it was really, you know, you know, it was sort of my, uh, ambition that when we went to a studio that I eventually started taking the range from the engineer that was there much to his dis, dis, dismay. Uh, I was the problem child, the problem recording guy in the room, where uh, I think one guy might have thrown a pencil at me eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, you know, I wanted a gated reverb and he wasn't doing it right, even at that time. And he was some reputable, I wouldn't necessarily say legendary guy, but, you know, pretty reputable with some real hits. And he was gating my toms all wrong, and I just wasn't, I couldn't take it. And I had to straighten them, <laughs> straighten them out, I guess, and he didn't like, like that. So, you know, but I was very passionate about that. And, uh, and again, it was a combination of, of, of not having budgets and not having um, circumstance where we could get, like, there's no way my band was hiring Bob, Bob Rock. I mean, he wasn't in our, in our world, uh, the, you know any lower level guys it was either like more just neighborhood kind of recorders which is what i became too in a sense uh or else you know just working on on it on your own and, and it's funny i ha i still have lots of high level friends now playing in some pretty major bands that still have my early recordings of my brother and i uh which is so funny because i don't even have those i don't know how they managed it <laughs> You know, one song was called Maple Leaf Rock that I think Todd Kearns, uh, who was in the Age of Electric and now plays in Slash, I think he still has my original demo of a song called Maple Leaf Rock, which I can still remember it in my head, but I mean, I don't have a copy <laughs> of that. Uh, but, you know, even at that time, I might have, the songs might not have been great songs, but even when I do hear those things, I can tell, oh, okay, I was I was kind of getting it. I was kind of, you know, figuring it out and figuring out how to record drums better and and how to compress stuff and just how to mix and and all that. I mean, probably for me, that stuff was easier. The songwriting kind of developed later in life in a sense where I became a better songwriter after failing over and over again, still failing in, in many ways. But I think as an engineer, I was able to get a handle on that fairly quickly. It was more math in a sense and more more black and white, you know, more objective and less subjective. Whereas writing a song is a whole different thing, a whole different part of the brain, I would think. So. Absolutely. And I, I imagine that when you started working with other artists, that's kind of when, you know, you're a little more detached from the music. So you can have kind of that, you can start firing up a different side of your brain that is a little bit more focused on, you know, perfecting the song and writing it from like a, you know, what's going to make this a hit kind of standpoint as opposed to being like the performer who's like proud of what you're playing and you know wanted to showcase your own talents and that kind of that kind of thing right i mean if if i'm complete being completely truth truthful i, I didn't really become good really good like engineering i i, I kind of got that fairly quickly and i could i could do some great recordings and our band always has great sonically sounding stuff but as far as being a legitimate producer or writer that probably didn't start happening until 
maybe one of the low parts of my life where I was, where I, I say low, but it was a wonderful job. I worked at Canada Post part, part time. And, but that gave me a lot of time for the first time to talk to regular people. In a sense, by regular, I mean like non musicians, right? Before that, I'm an ambitious musician. I'm, you know, playing polyrhythm beats on the drums and my brother's learning Inve Malmsteen songs and we're going back and forth trying to be the best musicians we could. And um, it wasn't until I slowed down and got, in a sense, got away from that, that sort of musical judgment world and just was sitting there coding letters at Canada Post asking the gal or the guy next to me, what, what are you listening? Because we, we would all put on, you know, disc, disc, disc mins or whatever. And, and I said, what are you listening to? I'm listening to Tom Petty. Why listen to that? What song are you listen to? Why do you like that? And then it became something where, you know, I mean, I always knew that uh, non-musicians listen to music different, differently, but that's when I started to sort of to tap in or start to begin to understand how the things I cared or worried about were completely not important to the average person. And it actually, as life went on, it became even more obvious that different things were important than I had previously thought. <laughs> Nobody cares about the drum fill unless it's, you know, <laughs> in the air tonight or, or wipeout, uh, you know, and I was a drummer. So it, it, it's hard to, it's hard to think of your craft as being less important that you studied your whole life. And so you, you can't really, become a good producer unless you're not concerned with any individual element at all. It's about the whole. All that matters is when that person, that, when that non-musical person presses play, do they like it or not? And why do they like it or not? And that's really the key. Everything else is kind of like school is kind of like, well, you need to know how to play music. You need to know what a chord is. You need to know how to set up a microphone. But you know, all that is functionality that is almost like you need that to even get to step one. Then you're on step one. As soon as you can do all that stuff, then you're able to find, to forget about that and just figure out the more, the meaning of, meaning of music maybe. And that's what people respond to more is the, the, the meaning of it rather than the individual things. That's a great way to look at it. And, you know, like, I feel like when a lot of people are first getting started with engineering, you can generally tell what instrument they play by listening back to their mixes, right? <laughs> are you saying my drums are too too loud? No, you they know, are. I was gonna say, you, well, you do have amazing sounding drums. Don't get me wrong, but I, but with your mixes, like, I find your vocals like you've mastered the art of getting vocals to be super super clear. And you know, I think I, when I listened to your tracks, I wouldn't have guessed that you were a drummer at first. I would have thought you were a singer. Just based on based on the volumes and clarity and everything, but that's a good thing, right? Well, I am a singer, just a really bad bad one. <laughs> well, you under, but it goes back to what you said of like understanding what's important in the song and you know making making sure that you're crafting a song that just sounds good regardless of what instruments are in there. Like obviously they all come together, but you know it's not about highlighting or showcasing one instrument all the time and that kind of thing, right? Well, I think as far, I, I know what you're saying as far as the, the vocal goes, and I think maybe some of that, some of my past was related to, the, to that in the sense that, yeah, I was a drummer, but we were playing country music most most of the time, where the vocal is the top of the food chain. The vocal, in fact, in almost all music, it's really about that vocal. Everything else, unless you're doing instrumental music, which is obvious, everything is about that vocal, and that's how people respond. I mean, you can have a guy like Bob Dylan singing great lyrics with hardly a melody and people love it 
or you can have a guy like uh you, you know i for some reason i can't i can only think of the queen's right guy which is funny because i don't even listen to queen queen's right but but that guy's a great singer you know back in those days and he was a great singer and but people are listening to those words. People are listening to to the vocalists, and then you filter down after that. You, you know, when you think of all the different singers, it's still the most important part of the band. No matter if you know, maybe you know Eddie Van Halen, just because he recently passed. I mean, he's in my mind too. But maybe he was as important as the singer was, as David Lee Roth or Sammy were. But but just the same, uh, the average person keys into the vocal first, and so that you. I try to get the, the final, the keeper lead vocal as quickly as I can, even if the music's not done. Because how can you finish the music unless you have that vocal? You need to know where the vocal sits, where it lies, even sonically where it's going to sit, the pitch of it. I mean, you can't really finish a lot of things until that's done. So it's a little bit of a circle in the sense that you need to have a bed track inspiring enough for the singer to sing. But at the same time, you got to go back and reverse engineer the bed track after he sings to say, because you don't know what's right or wrong. And that's probably one of the, my pet peeves about some metal bands is that, yeah, the music's amazing. It's like the guitar player's on fire. They're getting it, but there's no room for a vocal there to begin, begin with. And then when you just drop the vocal on top of it, well, you should have maybe change a couple of those riffs a little bit to accommodate that giving them some space you know again but it all depends what you're listening to it for if you're just listening to it for guitar well you can do whatever you want but if you're talking about commercial music possibly radio music or not even radio music you still need to hear that vocal and if the words are meaningful you better hear every word or mostly every every word absolutely well it makes sense because the vocals are really providing they're providing the emotion for everybody, right? Like you, the, the, the listener is listening to the lyrics and they're creating a connection to those lyrics. And if the music then doesn't reflect that same emotion, then it's all going to fall apart. So it all has to work together, right? Yeah. You know what? What's the most, it wasn't even eye opening. I didn't think of it at that time, but now I, I do think back to this moment. And that was when we hired, and I'm using, I'm going to use some Canadian references now because, <laughs> you know, you're Canadian, I'm Canadian. But Bill Henderson from Chilliwack, we hired him one time to to crit critique our songs and our bands and our productions and that sort of thing. It was before we had a deal or any of that. And what one of the things is, is that one of the songs he liked the most, one of his reasons was because the music matches up to the, the lyric and the vocal. They all mean the same thing. Versus sometimes you get a ballad and the guy's singing a happy lyric or the guy's singing a painful lyric and it sounds like a happy song. It's like he was the first guy that kind of caused me to stop and notice, oh, that's important. So if it's sad music, it has as elementary as that sounds. If it's sad music, it has to have a sad lyric, you know? And to this day, I think of that because a lot of times I'll – I mean, as a musician, first and foremost, I actually listen to lyrics second. I'll hear the vocalist first, but I don't. I don't always key in on on the uh, what exactly he's saying. But if I hear a song I love and I love it for, and it makes me feel a certain way, it's all. It's always so fascinating and amazing to me when I actually start listening to the lyric and go, "Oh, this lyric is exactly what I thought it would be. This lyric exactly means what I thought the music was signaling to me." And I think that's also the sign of hit song too is that if you can take the you know as important as a vocal is, if you can take it out and get the same sentiment, well then it's almost like a jack jackpot, right? I mean, you've got the best of both worlds because even if it's someone like me who typically gets the lyrics later, um 
by the time you do, you go, wow, that's amazing. That's an amazing song. So, uh, you know, it's important. It's important to be able to, although with say a band like Radiohead, I mean, I probably had to listen to some of their records like 5,000 times before I could even understand <laughs> what the lyric was. <laughs> But, but then you do get it, and you go, that's an amazing lyric. Yeah. So, But it all just comes back down to the emotion of it, right? Like, I think that's why when people are coming up with lyrics, they're often having, like, a lot of people will just, like, hum a melody or something like that. But if, like, even that the humming has the emotion and feel to it, you're still going to connect to it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that will, and that's what I, I guess what I do first is I connect to the melody and the music first. And then later on the lyric and occasionally you hear a lyric that goes, that has nothing to do with the mood of the song, but I still like it. Uh, but it's almost funny then because it's, well, wow, that's a weird lyric for that guy to take. <laughs> Although then it's more of a, you know, then it's more of a study of it's almost comedy to me. I can't believe they got away with that. And <laughs> I'm almost as impressed with getting away with a happy lyric in a so, so, sad music bed than I am, you know, hearing the amazing music bed. Or as take a song like Every Breath, Breath You Take. I mean, I listened to that song a billion times before I realized the cleverness of the lyric and how it really wasn't a love song. It was actually the opposite of that. And the music was really like that, too. It was kind of like moody, but yet kept you on edge a little bit, too. Even the pitch. The guitar was slightly out of tune, I thought, sometimes, and made you feel a little bit antsy. And then you realize the guy's, you know, not a predator, but the guy's trying to control his <laughs> woman in yeah. that way. Like, I'm watching you. I'm going to get you. <laughs> you know, that that was extremely clever to me, yeah. you know, and wonderfully ex executed. And one of the top songs in the world to, to this day. I always think of uh, Semi-Charm Life by third eye blind like that oh yeah it's such a positive sounding song but when you listen to the lyrics it's they're so dark and like they don't match wow. the, the vibe of the song at all i love that song and of course that was another reason why i said i was okay with being on your podcast because eric valentine's been on so i thought well you know because eric valentine was on your podcast he hasn't right? been on yet but i am working on oh, that so yeah. oh i thought it's the same okay well anyways <laughs> he's gonna be on now that i'm on yeah <laughs> <laughs> no that th that's an awesome song a great song and uh i didn't really uh listen to that lyric so i'll have to check it out now it's, it's all about yeah. being addicted to crystal meth and it's but it's like the, but the title is semi-charmed life it's like it could be a positive song yeah it's one of those songs that when you listen back to it and you realize what it is it's it's kind of comical like you said so <laughs> wow yeah that, that's that's cool yeah, I'll, I'll i'll check it out thank you yeah no problem so going back to the the idea of your vocals and how you have this tendency to get them really loud and clear i was wondering if you have any insight as to like what goes into your mixing process with vocals and how do you get them to sound so clear especially in a genre where like you do a lot of heavy rock stuff and a lot of rock music tends to be loud guitars just blaring right up front and the vocals tend to get blurred in there sometimes. So, you know, what's what's your approach to getting that balance between guitars and vocals? Well, again, it starts from the from the the, the top down. So, um, you know, we'll get enough of a guitar riff down and that sort of thing, so the vocalist feels comfortable singing. I know that if it's that typical kind of rock sound, that the vocal is going to be bright. It just is. It just has to be brighter than than the guitar. I mean, that's kind of the way that I'd even look look at it is the vocal is probably, if you want it to be heard without being too loud, uh, it's got to be fairly bright and, and fairly sibilant. So I do, I don't compress a lot of things before, before the, the recording, but vocals are one thing I do compress pretty hard. 
And I just found it just works better in my flow, better for my singers, because you can have someone like like Maria Brink, who can go from a whisper, whisper to a scream in seconds. Uh, I have a chain of compressors, actually, even on this recording that you're hearing now, <laughs> which is funny. I got Eric Valentine's Unfair Fairchild. That's first in my compressor chain. And then I have a, an LA3 as a more of a limiter kind of kind of thing happening after after that. And that's kind of my recording setup in a sense for most of the vocalists that I do too. And between those two, I can kind of ride levels and stuff. But so I'll but I'll compress it fairly heavy, to be honest with you, into the Pro Tools itself. And for whatever reason, that works out better for me. And um, a lot of attention put on keeping the vocalist in the same place on the microphone or not having the microphone too close, having a dead enough room so I can back the microphone up a little bit. So it's not, it's not, you know, making the diaphragm cave in or you're not spitting into it and, you know, too much moisture to get it as a change of sounds. Cause I make, I beat my singers up pretty, pretty bad. So, you know, they, they end up singing a long time. Um, but, you know, having them at a, a pretty consistent place on the microphone. So I don't have to do a lot of, a lot of automated EQ, but you know, that's the starting point is just getting a good i can press it fairly hard harder than people probably think so much so that i generally have to dial the breasts down a lot in pro tools volume graph all the breasts out and sometimes i don't really put a lot of compression by the end of the chain on in the session itself it'll just be my chain going in i can almost usually just use that if it's a con consistent kind of rock rock song um and then, you know, depending on how dy dynamic the singer is, I actually do have to automate a lot of EQ too. So I think that's probably what you're hearing a lot of times is that I will definitely automate EQ from verses to courses, even within lines. You know, if you're going from a whisper to a scream, there's going to be a lot of automation from my, my rig on, on that. Because when you're, when you're soft and you're singing in the microphone, you get all that low mid. And by the time you're screaming your head off in the chorus, it's nothing but, you know, three, three K. So, um, so I do put a lot of attention into both level and dynamic and EQ on that vocal that doesn't always stay the same throughout. It's not like a live guy. You're just bringing the vocal up and you get what you get. I mean, I'm dialing it in. If you have a song like sound of silence that I did that went through so many changes with Dave dream from the first verse to the last note. It's like if you, I like to call the 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 uh, the dancing EQs because you had all my EQs up on that song. It's just you'd see all the bands changing constantly, the cues changing, the frequencies all changing, um, and then at the end of it all, you find you need one more band, so you get one more EQ to <laughs> to kind of do that dance, and then you realize you're just undoing what you did before. So I mean, I like to say it's easy, but it's not. Rocks typical rock songs are easy if it's like a standard, you know radio rock song one vocal level all the way through it's not that tough but once you get into the more creative kind of tracks it it, it can't take on a whole different shape of work um you know and then if someone wants to get a guest appearance on there then that's just double the work again uh so uh, if you know i guess i don't know if i'm answering your question but it's a, it's a lot of work to kind of get it's not just luck and e easy and i'm lucky though that a lot of my singers just sound good, just sonically sound good. Like Ivan, Ivan Moody from Five Five Finger. If you're talking to him in the room, you can just hear his voice sounds good. It's got its own sibilance, its own body, it's all that sort of thing, right? So, and I've had people on the same microphone. I mean, I've had all my singers on the same microphone a lot of times because in the early days, I only had one one mic, 
And they all had to stay on that mic. And eventually I sold that mic to Jason Hook, the guitar player, Five Finger. And then Ivan Moody got all bent out of shape about it because that was his mic that he was singing <laughs> on all those albums on. So, And now a word from Kevin. At this point in time, the Mr. Engineer of the Year's microphone cut out and he didn't realize it. And unfortunately, we had to go to his earpods. He kind of beat Jason up enough until Jason gave it to him as a gift one one day, I think. So I, th- I think Ivan's got his original mic back now. So, so, but that was a microphone that everybody sang on. Which so mic I can was tell that? The, that was uh, a forty-seven copy. It was a Pluso. Uh, what what they call it? The Pluso eleven forty-seven. I think that's what it's called. But it was a special edition version. I actually had two of those mics. The first one wasn't a special edition because I couldn't afford the special edition one. Once I could because it had a different tube, then I could get that that mic. Uh, and I used that Palooza mic for a long time. When people were asking me what was my vocal chain, they were always quite sur- surprised in the end, you know, what I told them it was. Uh, and then they stopped asking me questions after that. Because I think <laughs> they're, all, they're all thinking it was like an original Neumann 47 or something like that, or a 251 or something like that. And it wasn't. It was a Palooza copy, which I say copy, but it was a wonderful mic. And actually, in the early days, it wasn't the UTA preamp. It was the um, 737, the Avalon 737 going through a dis- distressor. Um, but it was the Mercenary edition of the 737, which was blackface, and it was extra cool. I think it also had a different tube than the original 737s had. And I got a lot of compression from that. And then the distressor kind of limited a little bit. But it was a very similar sound to what's going on, on now. Uh, but, you know, cost me a lot less. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now I can afford the bigger toys. So when you're compressing your vocals, like I'm thinking of the Avalon or even the Fairchild too, like they can sometimes be a little slow to like on, on the, on the release section of it. When you're compressing that hard, how are you balancing that? Are you just using like the fastest kind of settings or do you like that slower setting? No, I like the fast settings. That's why I use an LA three at the end instead of uh, like an LA two or something too. So, uh, I don't have the 737 in here now. It's in the other room, but um, I, it would have zero, um, zero re, uh, re, release on it. So it was the fastest release on the 737 I could get. I had a little bit of attack on it just so everything, so I could hear consonants and that sort of thing. But on the distressor, I slammed it even harder. It's almost like the 737 comp was more for character and just general, like, easy going like easy over uh, comp and then the distressor is what made it more rock and roll and kind of gave a little bit more bite and that i had the um the release on almost zero if i remember maybe one or something like that just because some sometimes it just seemed to sound better with a little 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 bit of a release but almost like a limiter i mean not quite the limiter of an l2 or something like that but close yeah like sharp yeah that's very cool very interesting. I, I love hearing people's chains with with vocals and stuff because I'm also very much into like compressing very heavily. So it's it's cool to hear what other people are using. I mean, it's interesting because since COVID, I've I've had to have my singers do vocals somewhere else, like wherever they're from, because some of them aren't traveling. So um, it's interesting the vocals I get from the same guys that I know what their voice sounds like, and I know okay. So someone did recorded on an eighty seven. I know what an eighty seven sounds like. I know what my singer sounds like. But just without some of the compression features that I do and stuff like that, it it it's ends up being a, a little bit more work. Definitely a lot more work than if I'm recording myself. But then again, I record myself the way I want to hear it. So, you know, it's one guy. I'm the judge and jury at the same same time, right? 
but they all sound good. It's not that none of them sound good. They all sound good. It just ends up being like with such a dynamic range I've, on the way in, I do find that I have to do even more automated EQ with someone else's recording other than mine. You know, and, and, and then usually they're in a smaller room or something too, which I found that that can be pretty tough on a vocalist too. If you're in most people at home only have like a small vocal booth, which I used to have too. And, and since I have a lot more room, my vocals have been better. Absolutely. And also when you're, when you're not the one mixing it, you tend to probably go a little bit lighter on your compression settings and that kind of stuff. Cause you don't know what it's going to end up sounding like, right? A hundred percent. Nothing. In fact, I've had the opposite too, where it's all like a straight line. I go, please, why did you have to slam it that hard? And it's distorting and it's crapping out and the attack's too low. And it's, I mean, you can't even fix that. I mean, I'd definitely rather have it the other way around, which you're right. I would do the same thing. If I was sending it to someone else, I wouldn't slam it too hard. I'd just make sure it was reasonable. Uh, you know, although I'll have to say one thing I did, I recorded in, in my earlier in my earlier life as an engineer for another big time producer, much bigger than me. Uh, I recorded uh, with a lot less compression, and one of the tracks was going to Max Max Martin, who I really admired at that time. It was way after his Britney Spears days, but uh, and I remember when I finally met him, and he figured out I was the guy who recorded it. He said something to me like, "Could you use a little bit of compression on that vocal?" <laughs> and, and I thought I was doing him a favor by not compressing it too hard. But now that I'm in a different position in life, it's like I understand what he meant. You know, yeah, I should I should have been slamming that babe into into that alley too. But also, you know, you don't know your way around. You're a little bit more cautious, a little bit more conservative. It's one thing not to be great, but it's another thing to fuck up. And so, I would rather err on the side of caution. It's like even drum tracks. I'd rather have a guy record those without compression, distortion, you know, any of that. Just give me the raw tracks, so at least I know that there's a zero point. Whereas, you know, if you're doing it for yourself, you can do whatever you want because you know how you're going to treat it in the end. You can slam that 1176 on the on the snare if you want to, and because you know how you're going to treat it in the end. Uh, but you're right. If you're recording for someone else, you got you got to play it a little bit a little bit more cautiously. So you're like you're a man of many hats, and you you know you're a great engineer, you're a great producer, you're a great songwriter. When you get involved in working with an artist, like how do you define those roles? on these projects is that something that you're discussing with the artists ahead of time is it kind of something that like when you're producing you get involved in the songwriting naturally how does that kind of role definition look well i think at this point people come to me for all those roles i mean they, I, actually it's not even true they don't even care i mean nobody cares if a label calls me they just want it to be good whatever i have to do to do that they don't really care if i write the songs great someone else writes the songs generally they don't care if i need someone else to mix you know, that may even be their call. But my goal was always to do it all because that's what I like. I like every part of the process. And I think every part of the process is uh, dependent on the other part of the pro process. So, you know, as a mixer, I know when I'm tracking what I want, how I need it to sound tracking so that I can mix it the way I want to mix. And if I'm producer, even mixer, if I mixer and I know how I can make it sound good, I can tell the producer, which is me, Make sure you don't muddy that section up. But yeah, I, I mean, uh, so when bands approach me now, they're they're definitely looking f generally for, again, their agenda is to make a great record. And most of them are writing their own stuff. It's rock music. It's not pop or, pop or country. So most of the bands come in with songs or else we write them here. At the start, maybe they're not looking for extra help from me in those in those areas. Like it, it, definitely at the start of my career, that's the trickiest thing to to do. I mean, as an engineer, 
it's not your role to suggest a lyric change. It's not your role to, in fact, it's your role to not say any of those things. I mean, I'd be horrified if I hired an engineer and he started getting involved with me on the song is, why don't you change that part? Why don't you, why don't you put a bridge in here? And I, I would just tell him, please don't say anything. And now you can please leave because, you know, as producer, uh, there's a lot of moving parts and you don't need the assistant running through giving you comment or the engineer, unless you hired him for that. But in my case, you know, I guess because my first record was the was Ozzy's Black Black Rain. That was my first record as true producer. Um, eventually, he needed help, and I wasn't. When Zach originally played most of those riffs, I wasn't giving him input. I was just trying to not get fired. Um, so. But eventually, you know, as they started running out of gas a little bit, then they needed a little bit of help. And that's, you know, I, I just filled in where I could. And it wasn't that I was had an agenda. I was just trying to get the record done because it had been uh, suggested to me it might not get finished. And there wasn't any way I was le- not letting that record get finished. Um, so, but the good thing about that was then I was able to get writing on that too. So that kind of, that kind of set precedent for me that I became a producer writer at that point. Well, and engineer mixer. But honestly, I was just started out as engineer. They made me sign a, a work for hire agreement that says I'm there to engineer. I'm not going to get writing credit. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not producing, blah, 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 blah. And by the end of it, I was doing it all. So, and and thankful that to them, they treated me well. They treated me with respect and didn't try to, you know, take advantage of that. Um but then I realized, you know what? I loved that process. I loved doing all those things. And so one of my next bands was In This Moment, and I was able to contribute a lot. And then Five Finger came after that. And again, Five Finger didn't hire me as a writer or anything. They just hired me as an engineer producer. <clears throat> but as you get into it, as you get into the record, you know, there's just opportunities that that I was able to maybe prove my value at that point. Cause remember, I mean, I, I really wasn't anybody of note then and neither were they, we were just, they were an up and coming band. I was an up and coming producer. And we found that in the end, after that first record, that some of the best songs were the ones that I contributed on and that set the stage for the next record. And then they don't ask any questions. You know, I've got their trust. They have my trust. We just try to make the best record that we, that we can. And then once you have those credits, then the next band comes and says, would well, we like that record? What did you do on that one? Well, I co-wrote, I blah, blah, blah. I did all these things. And all of a sudden that becomes your, your, um, reputation, I suppose. And then that, and then that just becomes what I wanted to do. So now it's like I actually had to turn a couple of records down where they specifically wanted me to not write. And I turned another record down, which a band I really wanted to produce because they only wanted me to produce certain things and not do any music, whether whether it was just string lines or typical production things that I'd always do. <clears throat> you know, they wanted they would they want to let me do any of that. They just wanted me to produce their overall their overall whole, which is maybe what a guy like Rick Rick Rubin would do or something like that, right? But I'm just not that kind of guy. If I'm not getting dirty, I'm not having having fun. Yeah, you're not part of the band at that point. No. Then, although maybe as my career evolves, maybe I will do something like that more, just oversee it from more of an executive, produ- um, an executive producer position rather than an actual, what I would call an actual producer. But I don't want to limit myself to, like, say, Sound of Silence. You know, again, I mean, I arrange all those strings 
I mean, imagine if I didn't do that, A, I wouldn't have the joy that, that I have from listening to that song and who knows how it would have turned out. So it's like, no, I don't, I can't produce your record now because you're tying my hand, hands up. And the same thing with the writing. If there's a song that's 80% there and it only needs 20% to kick it into like an actual great song, am I going to say I could have made that great, but now I can't because I signed a contract saying I'm not going to write? Uh, no, I'm going to go on to the next band that w- wants contribution if it's needed. And if it's not needed, fine. I mean, I never try to force my way. If someone brings to me 10 amazing songs, I'm not going to make them worse. You know, I'm not going to do anything. But v- most of the time, any song other than Hotel California can be made better by, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is oddly enough, one of my favorite songs of all time. I can't imagine that song being better than what what it is. And I never do those songs as covers. I, I've done a lot of covers and I'll never choose those songs. because I just don't know how I can make that song any better. So therefore it's done. It's had its life. I'll let the Latin guy do a version of it or the <laughs> bossa nova guy do a version of it or something like that. But yeah, I won't be doing one because I can't do better than, <laughs> than, than, than they did. When you're writing for other artists, how do you approach the like things like lyrics? Like, are you writing lyrics for those bands or are you just kind of focusing more on the music? And if you are writing lyrics, do you try to write from the perspective of the artist that you're writing for? Or are you kind of writing personal perspective and trying to match your songs with the, the right artist? How's that look? With the style of bands that I produce, very rarely do I bring them a lyrical seed, a lyrical idea. It's happened a couple of times where I said, I got this great title. I think you could knock it out of the park. Why don't you write a song like this? But almost always with those, with the artists that I have, they have an agenda. They have a perspective. And most of the time, I couldn't write those lyrics if I tried. I mean, occasionally I have to put, I I mean, I work with some female artists and occasionally to help them, I have to put my female hat on and go, well, if I was a female, how would this feel to me right now? And, you know, with all the bands, though, it doesn't matter who they are. If I'm writing with Ivan from Five Five Finger, he, he's got a perspective that in life that I don't always have. You know, Chad Gray from Hell, Hell Yeah. I mean, he comes in, in his case, he comes in with pages and the novels of lyrics. And my role with him in that case is usually – narrowing them down, trying to pick out the most meaningful ones, trying to organize it all and trying to give it the best bang that I can in the matter of a space of a rock rock song because he overwrites. He has too much stuff. So he definitely doesn't need me coming in with anything. There's one song with that band that I ever brought, that was a band I brought a title to and it was our first meeting and Chad just, his he just shot daggers from his eyes into me and I write my own lyrics. <laughs> okay. It wasn't a lyric, it was just I thought it would be a great title for you. But in the end, he used that title. So, and in the end, we were, we're the best of friends now, but you know, I probably shouldn't have done that at the first meeting is given him a title. I didn't realize how precious every lyric was to him, but, and with all my singers, they're very, very precious on their lyrics. So I'm not there to tell them what to say or how to say it. I'm just there to capitalize on what they want to say. And, um, you know, a good example of that is say on the wrong side of heaven you know, from, from five finger, Ivan came in with the wrong, my, my mom said, I'm on the wrong, wrong side of heaven. And we had a good chuckle about that. And I said, but you're on the right side of hell. 
And that be- became, you know, part of that lyric. I mean, that's, that's with those kind of people who have su- such a distinct personality and the distinct per- perspective on life. My role is just to, to really to help them discover what's best about that song and to, to cap, to exploit it as much as I possibly can, which means them too. I mean, that they can exploit as much as they can too. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it really, it kind of comes back down to uh, what you were talking about earlier with like the engineer speaking up and being like, oh, why don't you throw a new bridge in there or whatever, right? It's like, sometimes you need to know what's sacred ground and what what's not with, with the collaboration like that. Oh, yeah. And, and honestly, maybe that's why I'm very careful with my guys. And that's why I'm very considerate is because I came from, well, first of all, I came from the world of being in the band which I had free, free reign. And then I went from that free reign to being an engineer where, you know, you don't say anything. You're there to get sounds and that's all you're there to get. And if someone wants an opinion from you, they'll ask. But if someone asks you for an opinion and you give an awesome one, and then they ask for an opinion again, well, all of a sudden you start being included into the inner, inner circle. <clears throat> and it's really about giving them value. I mean, that's, that's why I do the things that I do because, you know, I, I just try to give people value. And if they don't need me as a, if they don't need me to do those things, then I'm certainly not going to, going to, going to do them. But at this point in my career, it, I can have that conversation ahead of time where they can say, you know, we don't want you to write. And then we can have the conversation and say, I think it's important that I do. And that's where I get a lot of my joy from. So maybe I'm not the best guy for you. And if they're coming to me, asking me to write the whole song, well, that's also not what I do and what I'm good at because I can't, you know, I mean, imagine if I wrote all the lyrics for all those bands, it would be the same lyric and point of view, every band, and they're all very different. So that's not having different music. That's having, that's the Kevin Churko show, which while I'm a, I might like it, I don't think people would like that record over and over again. I mean, it's nice that, that Ivan's different from Maria and that's different from Chad and that's different from David Draymond. And, you know, they all have their own voice and their, and their own thought, thought process and what they want to say. Yeah. And that also translates to a different emotion as well. Cause somebody, they might not be able to get the same emotion out of your lyrics. Completely not. They won't connect to it at all. I could write the, I could, I could have brought them the same lyric that we ended up with. And just by the fact that I said that I did it, they would not just subconsciously, not even because, not because they're mean or not because they're precious about it. It's just you need to have the ownership of creation in order to champion something. I've had situations where the singer didn't love the lyric and it ended up being one of the best songs. And yet that singer did still not want to go out there and champion that song because it wasn't theirs. And it, it wasn't, you know, me versus the world. They just, they're mentally, they just couldn't quite connect to it in that sense because it didn't come from, from them. So you definitely want people to have ownership in that sense because they will work way harder on their career if it's their music and not yours. Um, and again, I'm just there to help them do what they want to want to do. And in many cases, honestly, lots of times the lyrical content is nothing that I can support. There's been some bands where I don't support that idea. That's not me. I don't. I don't think like that. But at the same time, I have to remind myself, oh, it's not me. It's not my point of view. It's their point of view. And I can choose whether to to work with that band or choose to not work with that band. But um, it's not ultimately, it has nothing to do with my point of view. They pay me. It's their voice. They're the ones that have to live with that record for the rest of their lives. I'll go on to another one. So That's a great point. I know a lot of the artists that you've worked with, they tend to have 
kind of already a, a well-established long career behind them. And I was curious to get your take on like when you're collaborating, how are you striking a balance between preserving kind of the artist's legacy or like kind of what their fans would define as their sound versus what's maybe more modern and possibly a new direction for those artists? Like, how do you find that balance? Well, that's generally a conversation ahead of time. I, I You know, I'm the kind of guy that likes to have a dartboard that I can see, meaning that I want to know where the bullseye is. So if it's an artist coming to me, say, we want to do an album exactly like our first album, I need to know that now so I know what the bullseye is. If they come to me and say, we want to sound current, well, then I'll know that. I think the hardest thing that any producer has to deal with is is when the label comes to you with an agenda that doesn't match up with the artist's point of view. And then the label says, we want to make this current and now sounding. And the artist says, I don't, get, I don't care about that. I want, to, I want it to be like this other thing. I want it to be what I call good. So that's generally a little bit of a conversation. And very, very occasionally, it's just like, let's see what happens. Like, we don't really, we don't know where this is going. Let's just see how it goes. And maybe with the Disturbed band, that was guys, they already, they were already legends, their own legend. And they didn't come to me till their, can't remember, their, would be their fifth record, maybe. Yeah, their fifth one. So, was, or sixth one, maybe even. So they they had had already done their thing. They had their identity. So, but they also said, you know, we kind of want to change change it a little bit too. Let's make it a little bit different and let's see where it goes. So we spent two days before they even hired me. They spent two days with me to have some fun. And let's see where it goes. And then they decide after that, yeah, this could be a good good thing. So then we started making a record after after that. But then we could talk to each other in different ways because we had they had already worked with me. I'd already worked with them. Like even in two days, a lot of times you can tell people's strengths and weaknesses and their perspective, what they want to get out of it, what they, what they need, what they might need you to do, what they definitely don't want you to do. So I'm always very clear that I'm working for them. And so I'm there to, if they're happy at the end of it all, they're going to hire me, me again. If they're not happy, they're not going to hire me. You know, having said that, I do want to know what I'm signing up for. So if you're a rock band, if you're a metal band and you come in here and you say you want to radio hits, but you don't really want to have radio hits, you still want to be Iron Maiden, then, well, I need to know that ahead of time because I'm just, I'm banging my head against the wall at that, that point. If you're not really ready, like look at the top 10 on radio. Do you see yourself playing one of those songs or something like that? If you don't, well, you don't really want to be a radio band. Maybe you want to be a band that has good songs that might get played on radio, but that's different than, again, than having a target with a bullseye on it and say, we want four, four number ones. Absolutely. That's, that's a little clearer, clearer to me because those are definable. Like here's the number ones of last, last year, which ones are closer to your style. Let's try to do something like that. And again, that's a reversing, that's a producer's way of engineering it, a re re reverse engineering that. But, you know, I don't think artists necessarily have to think like that. They just want to have to think that, you know, we we definitely want to do commercial music and have careers in 10 years. Um, and then, you know, my role is to help them along that path and go, well, this is this is one way we can do it. What do you think about doing it like this? And then they have the option to say yay or nay, just the same way as I have the option to say yay or nay when I do it, or even the option to say no when it gets into it. I mean, I've never I've never stopped working on a on a record. Um so 
luckily that hasn't happened to me yet. But I think part of that process is knowing ahead of time what it's going to be and at least setting the guidelines of what's expected. Absolutely. So, so another question I was curious about was that your career has spanned many different genres. Like you've worked with like the extreme pop side of it. You also work with the heavier metal side of it. How do you keep on top of like that changing musical landscape in so many different genres and, and so that you're continuously working at like a modern high caliber? Like, what do you, what are you doing to keep on top of that? A couple of things. I mean, most of the, most of my last decade has just been in rock. So just by the nature of only for 10 years, really only doing kind of rock, rockish albums, you, you're just always looking. You're always aware. The bands come in, they reference songs, they reference records. When you're watching your own music go up the chart or down a chart, you see what's beating it out. You see what's at the top of the chart, what's not beating it out, what you're beating, you know? So it's it's pretty easy for me these days to stay on top of rock because my the type of rock I'm doing is not very fringe. Like it's not like, you know, something that is not easy to track. Now, having said that, um, sometimes it does take a little bit of effort to listen to stuff I wouldn't normally listen to, uh, to find out why it's doing well. Like if something's doing well and you're saying, why is that so popular? Well, from a professional point of view, you need to know why it's, what the trend is coming. So I can even guide the new bands. Um, so uh, occasionally I'll, you know, I'll, you know, you want to, in my job, I'm there to, to make them as successful as they can possibly be. So I'm going to look at other successful bands, either my own or other bands, and say, well, what are they doing? How are they doing it? And sometimes it's not even related to the music as much as it is the marketing and and the business kind of machine and behind that act. But uh, but it is important to know what's out there and what's starting to take shape and what's on its way out. Uh, a lot of producers have a shelf life just like a band does. I mean, there is an arc of every band. Uh, with the exception of a few that just go on and on. I mean, ACDC is going on and on and credit to those guys for it, being able to do it and go on and on. But a lot of bands will have like a 10 year life life period. So, but if they're conscious and they can keep rolling with the punches, they can extend that for sure. And I think producers are like that too. I mean, we all kind of get locked into style and the, the catch 22 is that, when someone like myself has a bit of success, well, then more people come to me for that same thing. So then I do that thing again or similar thing. And then that starts to define what you do versus the other things that I could prob probably do just as well. So in the end, you almost have to start changing yourself consciously because sometimes people don't want even me to change. You know, I mean, a lot of people don't want their favorite bands to change right they oh this album is way different i don't like it as much as the last last one well uh the bands that i always like were bands like queen that every record was a whole different whole different thing whole different perspective whole different instrumentation whole different sound even though it always sounded like queen um you know i appreciate that and and i wish i actually wish fans appreciated more of a change in their artists too at the same time acdc does pretty similar things now than what they did their entire career so it worked for, for, for them, you know, and Metallica to point two. I mean, they've tried a lot of things and done some different things, some creative things from Lou Reed to, 
you know, the strings they got going on now, I mean, those are, those are great things for a band to try, but at the core of it, it's pretty much the same thing consistently because they tapped into something that was really good that people, people loved. Um, so, you know, I mean, so to answer your question, I think it's harder for me to stay on top of other genres and I stay on top of that by assimilation, by the people surrounding me, by what my wife plays, what my daughter plays, what friends play. Occasionally I'll see some, some, I'll, I'll go to all the charts and just kind of play a selection. Like when I started doing the Corey Marks, the country guy th that I'm working with now, I mean, I, I, I always listen to country a little bit, but I had to reacquaint myself with, with some of what was going on in country now so that I knew where I could fit him in, or in this case, not fit him in. Um, you know, that's a whole different thing. I mean, that was unlike a lot of the other processes of bands I work with because he didn't want to be that mainstream, typical 2020 country act. Uh, so that gave us a lot of freedom to do other, other things. And so, um, but I still felt I needed to know what was successful and what, a, what's a, a typical country number one and those kind of things and who's selling and and more importantly who's selling without being on those charts because the other other thing i love too is most of us as fans fans seem to love bands that can sell without having those radio songs i mean that's and that's a very powerful place for a band to be in is not to be dependent on radio or video or any of that and if you can be that kind of band, then you've got everything going for you because you're only dependent on your artistry and the people who will say yay or nay to it. Uh, a lot of us have to depend on a radio programmer for, for instance. I mean, that, that guy, I mean, when, when, uh, Corey Marks released that first song down here, they released it to active rock radio, which it worked on. And there's one station that basically said, I'm not playing this no matter what. I'm not playing a song that has Travis Tritt on it. No matter what, it doesn't matter how much you change or what, what you do, you know, how much you beg me, I'm just not going to play it, you know? So in a sense, we're dependent on that guy saying no or yes, but at a certain point, it's up to the fans. And as long as the fans can find it, they can say yes, or they can say no. And this less of a ratio between radio play, the sales you have in a sense, I think the better it is for the artists because they're not dependent on other people's choices. They're dependent on fans' choices. And those uh, ACDC would be one of those, those bands really. I mean, those fans just want to hear the same thing over and over <laughs> again. And I love it too. So it's not, a, you know, I don't even, I don't look down on that at all. I look at it like they found a magical formula and they're loving life doing the same thing. And I, th I think that's, that's cool. And there'd be little subtle changes throughout throughout each record in their career, but it's basically the same band. I think with pop, it's a little bit harder to do that because pop does change. It's more of a fair weather friend and flavor of the month. And fans are more into songs than artists. Um, and you can't really, well, I maybe now in the hip hop world and with the rap world, you don't have to have radio play, but previous to that, if you're not getting played, you're not getting paid. Uh, now with, the internet doing different things and streaming people have an access to direct streaming without having those gatekeepers should make music better. I would think in a sense that even for me, it's better because I can find artists I never would have found normally. Of course. Yeah. It's almost like these days, the artists that are having the most success with it, they're creatives as opposed to just like a musician. They, they you know, they are multifaceted. They tend to, you know, understand the video side of it or the social media side of it. They're kind of like their own self-contained unit. 
with themselves, right? Yeah, that's totally true. And and that's that's the uh, the pros and cons of it at the same time is that, you know, artists are taking a different shape in many ways. And that's not a bad thing. M- music goes on. I mean, music evolves. But without having attention to marketing, presentation, and artists these days is really sunk. Because it's not like the old days that you could just be awesome. And they put that record on. They've never seen you. They might have seen a picture in a magazine, but they can't go on YouTube and see every video and see every interview. So in a sense, all that mattered then was what was coming out of that speaker. Whereas now, other things matter too. And in a sense, it's easier to make that thing coming out of the speaker sound good. And because it's easier to do that, then it lets other factors creep in of separation by like what you're saying. I mean, a lot of it's social media or a lot of it is just personality. It's easier for an artist to get their personality across and it's easier for people to view that personality and say if they like it or not. Now an artist can directly respond to a fan. I mean, I couldn't imagine that 30, 30 years ago. I mean, one of my artists can put something on Instagram and a fan can immediately say, I hate it, I like it, you know, what are you doing? And then that artist can exactly respond to it. In a sense, that's really amazing, but it puts a different dynamic into it too. If you release one song early from a record and people aren't responding to it, maybe you're going to change how that record is done now, or maybe you're not. Um, but there's a whole different bunch of factors these days that will, and then all of it changes music. Even having Spotify pay you after a two-minute song changed music in some ways because then people realize, oh, you mean I get fully paid on a two-minute song versus a five-minute song? Maybe I should just do two and a half minute songs. I'm not saying rock people because rock people generally have a little bit more, let's call it, I I mean, I don't want to be judgmental, but they would have a little bit more uh, artistry and spine for what they like and what they don't like. But if you're purely about the business part of it, yeah, why would you spend more money making a longer song when you can get paid after two two minutes of time? (laughs) Now it's really don't bore us, get to the chorus. Yeah. <laughs> so all these factors kind of end up changing music. Even with COVID now, it'll probably change music a little bit too, because I would think a more legitimate artist does better during this time because like I can I can tune into Nora Jones YouTube channel when she puts out she's just freaking playing there in a room. And I like that so much more than a lot of other things that I that I listen to. So because she's a legitimate she can play and she can sing, doesn't need a microphone, just whatever is probably on the laptop or something. Uh, that's a wonderful place for an artist who's really good to be, that they just have to be themselves and just have to, you know, and a wonderful artist for me to see see that, or a wonderful place for me to be as a fan to, to see that too. So, uh, versus a whole big production of someone that needs everything, all the bells and whistles in order to perform and sound good. Uh, we'll, we'll see if that changes it. You know, it may or may not, or it may change it for a year and then it'll go back to the way it was i don't i don't know absolutely i think having that connection to the artist it's it does add a totally different dynamic to it but it's it's interesting for both the artists and the fans because the artists can feel free to express themselves online and do whatever they want get that feedback and then at the end of the day the commercial side of them can be like well this is the stuff that gravitated or that that people gravitated towards so let's release this like it reminds me of um like weezer back in the day i think it was their second or, th- or their third or fourth album they were just putting all of their demos on their website for their fans to hear and 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 they would put out like 
you know, like a jazzy version of a song and then they put out a rock version of it. And then it was like, which one sticks? And ultimately that's what made the album. Right. And so it was really cool. And I still have those demos and I love them because it like shows their their musical talent. But ultimately what came out was totally different, you know, or, or what it was a compilation of what worked. So, <laughs> and how engaging was that for you as a fan to be able to listen to that and be part of that process rather than just getting to your nine songs you used to get in the old days? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, 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 it's cool. Yeah. Very cool. I, I mean, it, it's, it's very different world. Yeah. yeah. So then on that note, the, the final question I want to leave you with is what makes a good song? A good song is something that uh, creates an emotion with the listener. It doesn't even matter what the emotion is. And it, there's no technical bar for a good song. If happy birthday makes you on fire, then that's a good song. <laughs> uh, if it doesn't, you know, I'll, you know, some legitimate tests of times are how long does a song last? I was looking up a song the other day that that's been recorded 400 times. And I'm going, wow, if that doesn't say how good that song is, nothing does. But, but to me, at, at the level that I'm working at and capable of working that if I can make somebody cry, that's awesome. That's a good song. If I can make someone feel like working out and feel all pump, pumped up and, and full of fire, that's a good song. It doesn't even have to have a good, to me, good lyric, like technically, let's call it good lyric or technically bad lyric. That doesn't matter. Does a person feel inspired? Does a person feel part of the club? Does it, can a person you know, have a good cry over it. Can a, can a person, does it impact? I guess what I'm looking at is impact. A good song is something that will impact people's lives. And melody, key, lyric, vocalist, none of that matters. All that matters is do you impact that person's life or impact them emotionally? And the more you can impact them emotionally, the better you'll do and the stronger of a fan base that you'll have. I love that answer. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's, it's totally true. Well, it's good that my microphone worked on that one too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, well, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know uh, you've got a busy day ahead of you, I'm sure. So thank you. I really do appreciate you taking the time. If people want to learn more about you or follow you online, what's the best way that they can do that? Well, I tend not to be great at the social medias. Uh, I don't have my own YouTube channel. I don't do any of that yet. Uh, but I think Instagram is probably where I'm the most active so I, I think that's the um, that's the one I like that I surf and stuff too. I don't really go on face, Facebook anymore, those kinds of things. So it's really just Instagram. I mean, it's, I still have my setting on where you can email me or like send me a direct direct message. Uh, any, but even that, a lot of times my daughter, you know, who manages me, uh, she'll monitor that for me and let me know, alert me if there's anything <laughs> that needs my my attention. And you know, you can email her certainly. I think management at high.lv.com that that's just one you can find on the web website or whatever so uh you know that'd be the best way i guess but but i gotta tell you that the, the instagram shows you my personality the most too so there you go that's important right it's not just about the the, the gear you're using the personality goes a long way yeah I, i'm 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 hoping to do a few more gear posts too i haven't done a lot of that i guess because to me a lot of times it's not as exciting as taking a hockey stick and hitting a garbage can with it and beating a garbage can up. That's fun for me. I, so I did, I did watch that and I was curious, was that like to make a sample for something or was that just, just a, a rage day? <laughs> no, it wasn't a rage day. Although, you know, I can understand how that would help. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, no, it was, I'm just looking at doing creative ways of, of, uh, 
getting some room sounds on my drum samples. And um, that the particular room I was in then, uh, which is the same room I'm in now, I mean, that's a smaller drum drum room and a little tighter sounding. So I was trying to find ways of making it a little bit more open and more garbagey. And what better way to make it garbagey than a garbage can? So <laughs> again, more interesting than turning a compressor and just dialing in my same old settings, right? So, For sure. Well, everyone should go check out that video because it's fun to watch. Yeah. And it brings out the Canadian brings out the Canadian boy in you with the, the Toho <laughs> hockey stick. <laughs> oh yeah, good times. Right on, man. Well, thank you again for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. All right, thanks. I appreciate being on. So that was my interview with Kevin Churko, and that was a lot of fun. As you could tell from my cheesy harp sound effect in the middle there, we were having a really good time. So it was a lot of fun to just hear Kevin's perspectives on things, and it was very interesting to hear his approach to vocals. I love how much detail he gave us there about you know everything from the mics that he uses to the compression types, how much he's compressing, what kind of release and attack settings he's using. A lot of fun and great info, because if you listen to any of Kevin's recordings, his vocals sound amazing. So if you haven't tried the combination that he outlined here, definitely try it in your next mix, and I guarantee you it will sound awesome. So one more time, I want to thank Kevin for being on. Kevin, if you're listening to this, thank you so much. That was awesome. And for you, the listener, I want to thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you get notified about all future episodes as they come up. And also, if you haven't done this yet, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. And while you're there, make sure to download the free Ultimate Mixing Blueprint that I've provided for you. It is a guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes, and it's designed to help you quickly identify which frequencies you need to pay attention to as you're mixing bass, guitar, drums, vocals, and all of that stuff. So make sure to check that out, MasterYourMix.com. So that's a wrap on episode 50 of the Master Your Mix podcast. And if you're one of the people who have listened from the very beginning, I just want to give an extra special shout out to you. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. And I look forward to releasing some new episodes for you soon. So I'll talk to you in the next one. Take care. Bye. <laughs> so dumb. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com. <laughs>